0: Welcome to the Positively Past, Positively Present podcast. My name is Kat Lowe, and I'm a researcher practitioner in the field of arts and health, and I've been collaborating with Positively UK since 2016. This series of podcasts came about through a project we've been doing looking at Positively Women's Archive, where we've been looking at the power of the archive to allow us to look back in order to be able to move forward. On the podcast each week, we'll speak with different guests who have been connected with Positively UK, both past and present. We explore different themes relating to the experience of women living with HIV. All of these have been recorded online as we wanted to include a wide range of voices, both safely and across borders. The nature of these conversations cover topics that some listeners might find difficult. So we invite you to please consult the episode's show notes before listening to the podcast. And finally, huge thanks to colleagues both at Positively UK and the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama who've helped bring these podcasts together. We hope you find these discussions illuminating and insightful. Welcome to the Positively Women Past and Present podcast. I'm Kat and today I'm joined by Sophie Strachan and Cinzia Milesi. Cinzia was one of the first prison workers at Positively Women, and was hugely instrumental in supporting and advocating for women in prison and women who use drugs. When she was in Italy, she participated in self-help groups for HIV-positive people and collaborated with an Italian organization called COSPE, which deals with emergencies in developing countries, such as women's rights, the environment, and health. In 2009, as part of COSPE, Chinzia went to Swaziland for a month to monitor the situation of HIV-positive people who'd recently had access to antiretroviral treatment. Today, Chinzia is living in Brazil and is a yoga teacher, and isn't as active in the HIV field. Sophie is the CEO of the Sophia Forum, she has provided policy advice on former Public Health England bloodborne virus opt-out policy in prisons and was a lay member of the development of NICE guidelines and quality standards on the physical health of people in prisons. Her recent year and the last year involved research looking at the experience of people living with HIV in UK prisons. She sits on the BASH Special Interest Group for Prisons developing quality standards for sexual health in prisons. And today we are talking about prison and HIV. So thank you both very much for joining us, and welcome. Cinzia, where are you speaking to us from today?
1: Well, I'm speaking from a little town called Guararema, which is in the state of São Paulo in Brazil.
0: Welcome. So you must be having a wonderful (laughs) amount of sun.
1: (laughs) Yes, today,
0: yes, but
1: it's raining quite a lot here in this area.
0: (laughs) And you, Sophie?
2: So I'm currently based in London, and uh, I'm actually in uh, the hospital that
0: I work in at the moment. So if there's any background noise, then that's why. Excellent. Thank you. And our resident squirrel is joining us from the roof of the shed from where I'm recording. So apologies for, about that as well. So to begin, we'd love to hear more about your involvement with Positively Women. When did you first hear about the organisation? Thanks, Kat. Thanks, Kat. So I first
2: came into contact with Positively Women when I received my own HIV diagnosis in prison in 2003. I had been receiving support from the health advisor that gave me my diagnosis, and she told me about Positively Women. And I had the most amazing caseworker, Maria, who would come in on, I think it was a fortnightly basis and I would talk about I think pretty much everything other than my HIV status because there was so much else going on at the time and it was very very difficult to deal with in the prison environment because you couldn't be open about it because of the level of stigma that um, resides in prisons so to have Maria coming in was an absolute lifeline (laughs) for me and I honestly don't know what my my journey would have been like had I not had that peer support coming into the prison, I I really don't. When I entered prison I'd been um, in active addiction, active drug addiction for a few years and so when I left prison I actually went into rehab for about seven months and and so whilst I was, from what I can recollect, I was definitely in touch with Maria, but I can't recall if I actually was going into Positively UK at that time. I think I was just focusing on rehab. Mm-hmm. And I continued to receive peer support and I met Lee Neal, who again, right up until her death a couple of years ago, was such a source of inspiration and and support Carmen, um, Beulah, um, Angelina, Joyce. There's, there's just so many. But I think in terms of women who had been former drug users um, to have those relationships with some of the women I've mentioned, mm. um, and also their, you know, a couple of them their experience of prison. As well, so they could really relate to that enforced isolation that you experience, that you just cannot be open about it. So there was the initial peer support, and then I started volunteering for them and um, started working on reception. And, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, and I'd come out of prison basically feeling unemployable you know I'd got some convictions which obviously took me to prison Um, and I you know I just didn't know and felt and I was really starting from a a blank canvas which was Mm. it it was was a gift in in some way because I've been able to work from that and you know and create and remember and and just move forward from that time on So I completed rehab and started volunteering. And then I applied for a job as a sessional worker and then just continued to work for them up until 2016. Um, So I was with them for over 10 years. And and within that, um, I did go back into prisons and provide peer support to women who were in prison with HIV. And I mean, that's where my heart lies Mm. always no woman should have to go through what we know women have experienced in prison. And uh, we also did some research at the time, um, HIV behind bars report, looking at the experiences of people in in prison at that time. Yeah, so I went on to deliver peer support in various settings, prison being one, and um, working closely with
0: doctors and nurses in HIV clinics. Thank you, Uh, Chinzia. What's your connection with Positively Women, which is now Positively UK? I started to
1: work for Positively Women from the year 2000 until the year 2003. I arrived in London in uh, 1989, uh, with the idea of staying a few months to learn English. But uh, the city of London fascinated me uh, a lot. And uh, I ended up uh, staying for 14 years. Uh, I started working in a five stars hotel, uh, the Mandarin Oriental Park in Nicebridge, uh, following a training uh, uh, to become a front office manager, which I never finished. <laughs> I never <laughs> uh, worked as a front office manager at the end. In 1998, I was diagnosed in London uh, with (coughs) HIV and hepatitis C, co-infection. At first I felt uh, alone, like uh, I was the only one in the planet having this problem. And uh, my husband at the time supported me, uh, but it was hard for for both of us. Uh, anti-retroviral uh, treatment uh, for HIV uh, had recently been introduced. No much was known about uh, the short or long side effect. Uh, I immediately went back to work. I tried not to think too much about what was happening to me, but uh, I could not talk to anyone about my head condition. Uh, and my hair condition at the time was really not good at all, and uh, many at work, yeah, they uh, they were asking me what's wrong in the, uh, with me. Uh, I was tempting to talk about it, but I was as well afraid of the reaction, so I I couldn't share my anxiety. Uh, that's why I was feeling. Uh, really alone in that situation. My health advisor at the time was helping me a lot. uh, He gave me important information on how to manage and cope with my recent diagnosis. But he couldn't put himself in my shoes, obviously. Uh, And he suggested that I participate in support groups for HIV-positive people. So that I could talk as equals, sharing my feeling and emotions with people who understand me as they were experiencing the same problem, and I would not feel alone anymore. It was the best advice I received. And uh, uh, after choosing uh, different organization, I decided for positively women. I started getting out. Uh, through peer support and supporting group where I met wonderful people uh, with whom I was able to share that secret part of my life. Uh, I consider myself blessed, really. Blessed to have the, the total support from my family, from my closest friends, but no one could better understand the situation I find myself in than people who knew and shared the same problem. So when the opportunity arose in the year 2000, uh, through an interview as a drugs and prison worker, I jumped in and to my delight, I was hired uh, for this position. It wasn't easy. But the collaboration with my co-workers like Angelina, Rose, Sarah. Uh, Sylvia at the time, she arrived one year after. They helped me to overcome the difficulties. Ne? We work in a very harmonious atmosphere. Uh, Neal uh, had been a great teacher for me. Uh,
0: we laughed and cried <laughs> with great serenity. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you both so very much for sharing your journey and your connection to Positively Women. There are a couple of key themes that are emerging, one of which is the support offered to women who use drugs. You both talked with such great love and passion about the support you got from Lee Neal. And could you talk to me a bit about Lee and about what she did? Chinsia.
1: Okay. <laughs> um, well, I come as well from uh, experience of drug uh, use, and in Italy I spent time in prison as well, and the situation is not better than mm. <laughs> than England. But I, at the time, I didn't know that I was HIV positive. Right when. Uh, I uh, positive women. I find uh, very m- much more easily for me to have a relation with uh, Lee. She was a very strong woman, <laughs> but with a capacity of uh, empathy, a-, a huge empathy, really, with uh, people in general, particularly for people that. Uh, uh, they had a uh, problem with uh, drug use. Yeah? I always admire her very much. We become as well friends. Yeah? And many times, uh, as Sophie said, uh, we were not even talking about HIV or other things. Yeah? We weren't out, living a normal life. And uh, seeing Lee uh, really helped me a lot to become, as I say, more re- resilient.
0: Sophie, is there anything you'd like to, to add to that?
1: You know, I
2: I Lee and there were just conversation, you know, unfortunately because of the stigma that is attached to drug use, because of the stigma that's attached to people who have gone through prison. You know, I've spoken over the years about, about that multiple identities and... Um, I've just felt at times that, that that's not being dealt with um, very well in organisations. I don't think they've been able to see the impact of that. Um, mm. and, and so to have women who, I mean, Lee, again, you know, the background of her addiction, it wasn't always about HIV. It's that shared lived experience and the ease and the safety and the trust. Lee has been hugely inspirational for so many women over the years and was such a strong advocate, again, right up to her her death. Um, And she leaves a real legacy and um, Carmen as well. And, uh, you know, through, through Lee, I connected with ICW, where actually they had more of a group of female drug users with HIV Um, Mm -hmm. and so there was you know a connection there and then Maria with the same lived experience and and for me that hope that she gave me and so many other women I mean well I felt that we went one step beyond in terms of when we were supporting Mm -hmm. women in prison because because we needed it you know Maria used to bring me in tobacco and sweets and you know she would just <laughs> cigarettes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and and um you know the health advisor would would bring me off the off the wing and, and bring me down to healthcare for a cup of tea and a cigarette. I mean, obviously we weren't supposed to be smoking in the prison, but you know, it's um it was just about getting me off the wing and because it was really, mm. really hard. I had and I have a community of women who I have felt held by, even if there wasn't conversation, yeah. just by the fact that I could, I was surrounded by women like me and not like me, but our common ground was the fact that we'd all received a diagnosis and we were all trying to move forward and very successfully moving forward in our life one of the many many things that peer support provides is that connection the mm. connected feeling I have so many like sheroes um, women who have come before me you know Sylvia Angelina other names I probably can't mention publicly uh, because of their confidentiality there's just so many who have walked the path ahead of me for me to follow in their footsteps and that I still aspire to
0: and and create spaces for. Thank you for sharing with us about these inspiring women. And I'm gutted I never got to meet Lee because I have heard so much about her. Mm. The other thing you've both talked about is the challenges that women were experiencing living with HIV in prison. So the report you mentioned, Sophie, about HIV behind bars. Could you tell us a bit about what it was like for female prisoners living with HIV or being diagnosed with HIV whilst being in prison? Some of the women that I worked
2: with didn't actually receive their diagnosis in prison. And I think because of the gender roles that women play, which is why I'm really against the incarceration of women is the literally, I think, the breakdown of, of family units that can happen because a lot of them are the primary carer if there's children in terms of housing that tends to be in their name. So, I one of the women that I supported when I very first started providing peer support in women was to Sarah Porter, who had been jailed for reckless transmission of HIV. And I saw the direct impact of the separation from her son, the hounding by the press mm-hmm. um, and the trauma for her. I think that it's the multiple traumas that we experience. So the trauma of just ending up in prison. Yeah. And then the added traumas of separation from family, potentially, if you were in for a short period of time, your housing may well have been saved. But what we commonly saw was women were then leaving homeless. Yeah. Um, And then, depending on, again, whether it was a remand, and sort of a bit of a revolving door pattern going on is whether you were able to engage in any kind of uh, rehabilitation whilst you were in prison. Because there were pressures on services then. I mean, it was I was so lucky to get funding to go into treatment. I mean, I went into treatment on a court order. But in terms of the picture today of women being offered places in rehab, I mean, they're practically non-existent. And the harm reduction models have changed today in the UK than how they were, well, nearly 20 years yeah. ago now that's one impact. So for other women, there was um, immigration issues. And so a lot of my advocacy for women in prison was very much from a human rights perspective, Mm -hmm. you know, access to basic medication, because even then there was reporting, repeated reporting of inconsistent access to antiretrovirals, which still goes on today, 20 years down the line. Um, And then in some cases, women being deported back to their country of origin. So it was about trying to ensure that they'd have access to antiretrovirals when they were returned
0: home. And a continuity of care.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so lots of support letters to advocate for their reasons to remain Mm -hmm. in the UK, because there was very little at that time where countries could guarantee it was that daily consistent access to antiretrovirals and if they couldn't provide that then there was a breach of their human
0: rights. And in a way how how much has that situation actually improved?
2: I don't think it has. I mean the, the challenge with the prison estate is that and this is more about a system than individuals because there's some amazing doctors and consultants and healthcare workers doing the very best that they can in in a ins- particular institution, but there's no consistency across across the prison estate so therefore there's no consistent practice of care and obviously some of them are privately run and some of them aren't privately run so how the privately ones run will differ from
0: how the non-private ones run yeah. and that's that's been consistent over 20 years. Thank you Sophie. Uh, Chinzia, I had a question for you. How did you approach working with women in prison? Um, what did you bring to your practice from your own experiences?
1: So uh, my meeting with uh, the prisoners took place in the women' health care clinic, in total privacy and security. Uh, so it was uh, only I and a client, yeah? and uh, she could talk. Freely with me. Uh, that I think it was, as uh, Sophie said, was really helpful to get out of the wing you know, for sometimes, and have a you know a, a conversation, normal conversation with uh, uh, someone uh, that, that wasn't really part of the prison. Uh, during the three three years, uh, I played my role as a dragon prison worker. The prisoner I met had rather short sentences as their crime were related to use of alcohol, drug, pity thief. Uh, sometimes there were um, African women that uh, were coming in UK. They were importing drugs to pay their, their trip, right? And unfortunately, sometimes uh, they were caught and ended up in prison. When they were going out from prison, most of the time they were going to immigration center in Heathrow. So sometimes I could carry on uh, my support over there. Not all the time, but sometimes I could. And at the time in Africa, there were no access to treatment. So if they were diagnosed with HIV, they, they could have a good chance to permanent in UK, right? But the condition of the immigration center, I, I can say it was worse than prison, really. It was awful.
0: How so? Well, um, they,
1: they didn't have the same support they could have in prison. And uh, as well, sometimes it was difficult for them to carry on the treatments. And with the uh, everyday waiting for uh, the immigration department to uh, send her back. Yeah. So it was really a stressful condition, right? For me as well, for me, in a sense, I, I didn't know when I was going there if uh, I, I was able to meet my client.
0: You weren't sure if you were able to have access to them, yeah. Exactly
1: to them or to find uh, them there, because sometimes, unfortunately, we're sent uh, back to their country, right?
0: I'm sorry, Sophie, is there something you wanted to add to that?
2: It, it was just completely um, agreeing with Gensia. Uh, it, 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 it reminds me of one lady who had who I had been supporting and she had just completed a, a seven-year prison sentence and was then moved to an immigration removal centre and I was able to go and see her and also have phone contact with her and she actually said that her time that she spent in the immigration removal centre was far worse Mm -hmm. than the seven years that she'd spent in prison and so felt so inhumane. I mean, it is literally like, a, I think, a form of torture, mental yeah. torture, when mm-hmm. you're left sitting there with no information of when you're going to be going. You could be sitting there for another year. Yeah. Yes. You know, you feel so powerless. And for her, she had made the decision to return home. So what she also knew, whilst we had secured, um, I think, six months medication for her, what she also knew that she was going back to was there was no guarantee that she could there was very unlikely that she was going to get the medication regime that we'd been giving her in the UK, but the the region that she was going back to did not knew that they were not going to be able to provide consistent access. So, but she had family back there, um, but it was just too hard for her for her here, the, the uncertainty, the, the not knowing, at least she knew that if she was going to go home to die, then she was going home to die with her kids and her husband.
0: That is the most hideous decision to have to make, to be placed into that position, that lack of humanity being shown towards her.
1: Totally. Um, can I add some something that um, about what Sophie was saying? When... Uh, that African women were imprisoned, they knew how long was the sentence, but in the immigration center, they didn't know for how long they were staying. So uh, imagine, yeah. you know, it was the mental torture uh, all the time. A
0: constant uncertainty. Constant. And a exactly. situation. Don't know. I wanted just to bring us back to um, women in prison, in particular living with HIV. You both um, mentioned the discrimination that these women might be encountered. Could you give us a bit more information about what that might look like? I remember hearing other women
2: saying that they weren't going to go up to the food counter when a particular woman in prison was serving food because she was known to have HIV. Mm -hmm. I don't know... I mean, I disclosed to one other person when I was in the prison and I don't believe she told anybody. I know that when I was seen repeatedly going down to healthcare, I got asked a lot of questions and I basically just said my own business. Um, but, you know, there were questions whether people knew. I don't know. There were reports of um, nurses refusing to treat a woman who was a known self harmer. Um, and there were rumours about her being an AIDS patient, women refusing to use a bath or a shower after somebody who had HIV. Um, So just hearing that, you knew that there was a very clear message that it was not safe for you to talk about your HIV.
0: And prisons run on rumour and secrets. Mm -hmm. So actually the currency of that as well, and the limiting factor as a result.
2: Can I just add as well, um, before Chinsia comes in, is in terms of the prison itself, the discrimination, because all the other stuff is stigma, is just the role of stigma and how it plays out, but actually within the jobs that you can get within prison, and it's still happening today, is um, despite you equals you and all that information that women and men but we're talking about women here are refused jobs in certain settings kitchen being one especially based on the fact that they have hiv and yet Mm -hmm. there's
0: all the evidence to say that they would be absolutely no risk and in a way less of a risk because they're more on top of their health status completely completely Mm -hmm. In a way, that leads me to my next question is what do you think needs to be put in place for women who use drugs in prison?
1: Women in prison often come from a a deprived background, yeah, and many of them have experienced physical or sexual abuse, alcohol or drug dependence, and inadequate health care before imprisonment. Mm Offences for which women are in prison are, as I say, mainly non-violent. Uh, that means that imprisoned women often serve a short sentence, resulting in a high turnover rate in women in prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, many times uh, I was finding again and again the same women coming back to prison, yeah. right? As a result of their lifestyle, many women that enter in prison, they didn't have access to health care before that. Many women in prison are mothers and usually are the primary or the only caregivers for their children. Female prisoners have complex health, social and family needs. It is important that the prison system identify women who have been victims of violence, abuse, which is unfortunately, I think, the majority of them. Counseling and support should be available uh, and should continue after release. Generally, women with substance use problems have fewer resources. Uh, like education, employment, or income, are more likely to be living with a pattern with substance use problem. So they go back using. A major concern is that prison systems frequently do not guarantee access to this treatment. A gender-sensitive approach to women's health care should always take into account the need to provide specialized addiction treatment programs, uh, support to staff should also be developed.
0: I think the importance of a clarity and continuity of clear guidance and guidelines for staff, I think is key. I think that's definitely something that Sophie's mentioned in terms of there is a lack of continuity across prisons. Yeah. If it's a public prison, I mean, if it's a private prison or under government oversight, Sophie, in, in your opinion, what do you think needs to be put in place for women who are drug users in prison?
2: My first advocacy ask would be about the provision of peer support for women, and it's not consistent at all. What I know is that for people who are, have substance misuse Uh, they are linked to the drug and alcohol services that tend to be going into the prisons in the UK. And therefore, any kind of maintenance programme substitution, opioid substitution, would be delivered, you know, by the healthcare team. And again, this is another issue in terms of a story I heard recently where... The person uh, was going up to, they have to go up to the hatch to get their medication, mm-hmm. and they're asked what they're taking this medication for. So there's no privacy. God. Yeah. So that's not working. In terms of the proportion of women that we see going through the criminal justice system in the UK, you know, significant trauma to their histories, um, sexual violence, domestic violence. There are some incredible charities that provide support around that. But there's massive underfunding for women-specific services across the UK. They are the most underfunded services, actually. And the waiting lists are huge. So the Sophia Forum is is a women's organisation. And um, we are small in numbers, but, but our work is impactful. And it's a challenge to get funding. I also think whilst we have all these nice guidelines and policy recommendations, actually there is a disconnect to what actually translates to delivery in the prisons. Um, And that has been an ongoing, consistent challenge. There have been some changes, the introduction of opt-out BBB testing in prisons, we always knew would pick up more hepatitis C diagnoses than HIV, but it did also reveal a level of HIV that they weren't aware of at the time. But uh, the practice of every person coming through reception and being offered a blood virus test is not consistent across the estates, uh, which I think is always going to be a narrative, sadly. I... I'm a massive advocate for alternatives to prisons for women and models where they can have almost like an MDT um, approach and very much a trauma informed approach. I was in a prison yesterday up in the north of England, um, actually going in to speak to women in prison and they were health champions. So it's like HIV awareness. And then I was going and sharing some of my experience. And I noticed on the wall that they were. talking about a trauma-informed approach and what that actually meant and what that needed to look like in practice. But then you come up against the day-to-day running of a prison and as soon as there's a staff shortage or a security thing or anything like that, it all all goes. And and that's not to put down the work of, you know, some, Mm. some incredibly committed staff, you know, going into those prisons day in, day out. But I feel that... You know, in terms of what level of rehabilitation is really happening in prisons, I don't feel it is enough by any means. Mm. Baroness Causton wrote the Causton Report and they were advocating then for alternatives to prisons. And what I've seen pop up are basically just smaller prisons. (laughs) It's it's not really translating to uh, the model that was visualised over 10 years ago now we, and the mental mm. health of women going into prison and then the imp- the impact mm. of the incarceration itself and everything that goes with that the whole system needs a complete
0: overhaul I, I don't think I could agree with you more yeah thank you both so much um, it has been fascinating and illuminating and I wish we had 17 hours together mm-hmm. we ask everyone of this podcast one question. What are you bringing from your past into your future? Sophie, would you like to go first? I just feel my lived experience.
2: I mean, that forms so much of what, everything, what I do today. As I sit as the CEO of the Sophia Forum, as I now, in terms of my involvement with Positively UK, we're working in partnership with Positively UK on a project that is supporting women as we grow older with HIV. It's called the Grows Project. Um, I'm back as a peer mentor, volunteering. So I have two hats there, it's like we're in partnership and then I'm a peer mentor, which is lovely because it's reconnected me with a a group of women who have come behind me, so to speak, and and yet there's the common ground. So I'm connecting to a completely new community of women living with HIV. And my anger, I'm, I'm bringing my anger from the past, because it drives so much of what I do in terms of the injustice and the inequalities that that we still see, what I still see, nearly 20 years down the line, not just for women in prison, but for women full stop. And hope and compassion and empathy, because that's all that was shown to me and given to me. So I try and carry that forward.
0: Thank you, Sophie. Chinsia, what are you bringing? from your past into your future (laughs) well yoga has been
1: uh, very important for me Mm -hmm. and i started practicing yoga two years before my diagnosis and i never stopped practicing (laughs) since then right so as he taught in yoga leave the present the here and now so my present is the result of my past As far as HIV is part of my karma in this life, Mm. uh, the pain of knowing that I would have to to live with this heavy stone on my shoulder for the rest of my life, has turned into an opportunity Mm. to help others with empathy, to overcome uh, difficult situation and crises to respect my health and well-being and to appreciate the importance of having people close to me who understand and accept me as I am. <laughs>
0: Thank you both the hope, the empathy that you both hold on to and share and offer to others. Thank you for taking the time today, for being with us, for sharing your story and your brilliant work and expertise and thank you both for being here it's been a delight
1: thank you very much (laughs) thank you very much
0: thank you for listening if you'd like to hear more please like and subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if you're affected by anything shared in the podcast please see the positively uk website for a list of their services and other support organizations I've been Catlow. These podcasts have been edited by Chuck Blue Lowry, coordinated with Joy and Solidarity by Mariam Shaharadeen and Chriselle Dukuzin, music by Jessica Roach.